get slatherings and sprayings and <laughs> all ready to go. Shabbat shalom, everyone, and mazel tov to Eve and to your family and to your family here. Everyone's, I know, excitedly watching over the miracle of that tiny camera and trillions of electrons are streaming back and forth to bring this image to everybody. And I know that this uh, moment, particularly the way that it's being celebrated, is not what you anticipated years ago, I suspect, when you booked it. But it's funny um, how things happen in life. Because um, in moments when things start getting taken away from us, how even the remainder of the smallest things make us profoundly grateful. So a year or two ago, if someone had said to you, there would be a pandemic raging during Eve's bat mitzvah, and the sad reality is no one would be able to attend. You would have been heartbroken, we're canceling, we're not doing it, and all these things. And yet now that you're here, the presence of witnessing and seeing this is the greatest reward you could have imagined. And you're grateful for this, despite all the things that aren't here. And so there's an idea found at the very beginning of the bat mitzvah portion that will forever be connected to Eve to your life. The idea is, and it's a very weird formulation in the Hebrew text, the likes of which we never see anywhere else in the Torah. And it goes like this. The very beginning of the Torah portion says to us, and God spoke to Moses, and Moses spoke to Aaron, and Aaron spoke to the elders, and then the elders spoke to the sons of Aaron, and this long kind of train of one person speaking to another, speaking to another, speaking to another. I mean, certainly it could have simply have said that God spoke to Moses, and Moses said to the children of Israel this, which is, an, which is a formulation you've heard many times. And the heart of it, I think, touches upon that it illustrates what is so animating for Jews. The idea is, is that there is a link, a connection, of things before us, of person to person, one person after another, or more simply put, you and I wouldn't be here if our ancestors had not been people of enormous faith, not just identifying Jews, but Jews who had enormous faith because the challenges that they faced in their life to simply be Jewish was beyond our recognition, thankfully. And so the presence of us here is an echo of things said and believed and loved by people who have come before. And Eve, your presence here is no less than that. And so I join you with your mother and father and your family and friends who are watching this and celebrating this with you and looking forward to not only enjoying what we've seen here from you at this moment, but understanding the many beautiful things that will come. And I promise you, Eve, as people never forget their Barah Bat Mitzvah moment, yours will be unforgettable. I promise. <laughs> You'll tell your children and grandchildren every time you walk by the synagogue, you know, I had my Bat Mitzvah there and it was during COVID. And they'll say to you, Mom, what was it like back then? And you'll tell them. So um, I wanted to share with you a few ideas because everything on the news today is 
COVID. You don't hear or see anything that isn't COVID. It's either economics or vaccines or antibodies or all these other things. And in the mixed and jumble of all things COVID to take grip of us, I think some things have been lost. And so I want to put COVID to the side. I want to bring some other things in front of us. What I want to bring in front of us is what I admit was something that I had completely drawn myself blind to. And that is a few weeks ago was Yom Atzmaut, Israel Independence Day. In a few weeks from now, it'll be Yom Yerushalayim, which is Jerusalem Day, which celebrates the reunification of the city of Jerusalem in 1967 during the Six-Day War. And so what I wanted to talk about is this. Now, I had just come back from Israel a few weeks ago. I had to leave because of the pandemic, not because I was afraid to be in Israel. Actually, quite the opposite. The Israelis managed the threat of the pandemic with remarkable degree of agility and expertise. Now, the truth of the matter is nobody ever gets an A when it comes to managing a pandemic. It's impossible. But the Israelis actually managed the B+. And from the very beginnings when, this, when the shadow of what this was going to be was becoming alarmingly clear, Israel closed off its airports. And it began an ever-increasing series of closures around the city, so much so that where we rented our apartment, if you're familiar with Tel Aviv, it was on Bograshov and Ben Yehuda. In short, it's like Beibor. And the, uh, the closures had become so intense and so well accepted by the Israeli society that I could, my wife and I were able to cross the street in the middle of the day and not look left or right. There were no cars. People patiently waited outside the food stores. You walked into the food stores, only four people were allowed in at any one time. They'd hand you a mask, spritz your hands, and then give you gloves. And everyone went through this. Now listen, they're Jews, people complained, yes. But everyone went through this with an, with an incredible sense, and I was shocked at it, an incredible sense of obedience. And I liken this personally, that in Israel, they're very good at managing emergencies because they have muscle memory for these things. They know what an emergency is because they're always living in one kind of emergency or another. They know how to follow rules when it matters. <laughs> they know how to take orders when it matters. But what I want to talk, and, and this idea actually is spoken also in the Torah portion this morning. Because even your bat mitzvah portion, we hear about the calendar of the Jewish people. This morning we read about the institution of Passover and Sukkot and Shavuot. And the remarkable question that certainly comes to mind is, is that these laws, Moses spoke about these holidays when they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. They hadn't gotten into the land of Israel. The people who were wandering in the desert with Moses would never go into the land of Israel. They would die in that desert, as we know. And so why is it that Moses would speak of holidays that would be held in the land of Israel to a people who would never go? It would be their children, but it wouldn't be them. Why would he speak of this in the desert? So I want to speak about Israel, as I said, but not politics and not conflict. I want to speak about the idea of Israel. 
And the idea of Israel perhaps is best seen in this one small fact. A set of Hebrew words that are perhaps the most well-known, not only by Jews, but by non-Jews, is not the Shema, although Jews know the Shema very well, or at least it used to be that way. I would say to you that the most well-known Hebrew words, both by Jews and non-Jews, even if they don't can speak the words themselves, they certainly recognize them as immediately as they're spoken, is the Hatikvah. Jews and non-Jews throughout the world, as soon as they hear the chords of that song and hear, Kol od balevav, people know what it is. Even the most distant Jews, they know. They may not know the Shema, much to the chagrin and pain of a rabbi, but the Atikvah, they know. So how did the Atikvah become this remarkable, this remarkable anthem? an institution in Jewish life that is so well known by people throughout the entire world. I want to tell you about the Hatikvah. It was written by a Polish Jew who was living in Romania. His name was Naftali Herz Imber. We don't know exactly when he wrote it. He was a poet, a Hebrew poet. 1877, 1881, we're not entirely sure. But Imber, interestingly, was a Hebrew poet long before there was a state of Israel because he was part out of an entire wave of people roughly from 1860 who had this enormous revival of Hebrew culture. People like Bialik and Chernochovsky and Imber and others were all the vanguard, the leading edge of people reviving the Hebrew language. And he wrote exclusively in Hebrew poems. He wrote books and books of poems in Hebrew. This poem he titled, Tikvatenu, Our Hope, Hatikva. We don't know entirely where he got the idea of the word from. Some people said it comes from the 37th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. If you're home, you can look it up. It's the story of the valley of the uh, dry bones. Other people say that he was inspired by one of the very first successful Jewish settlements in the land of Israel in the late 1800s. What was the name of that settlement? Petach Tikva. Petach Tikva is famous, well, not only because it's famous, Petach Tikva is famous because David Ben-Gurion actually went to live and work there for about a year when he first landed in the state of Israel. He wrote in all honesty that he couldn't stand or bear waking up at four o'clock in the morning to pick oranges. And he decided there must be some other calling in his life. We're lucky he did. In any event, we don't know entirely sure um, where he got the inspiration for writing those words, but this much we do know. That the father of modern Hebrew, Eliezer ben Yehuda, hated Naftali Imber. Maybe he had a little bit of writer's jealousy to him. We know that Theodor Herzl, whose, um, well, his window is right over there, the third from the back, Theodor Herzl, the famous image of him. I'm sorry all of you can't see it. That famous image of Herzl was taken from Basel. It was a picture taken during the first Zionist Congress. He's looking over the city on a bridge. Herzl hated the poem. Hated it. People were already singing it back then and talking about it. He hated it. He hated it so much that in 1897, Herzl instituted a competition to replace it. He wanted to have a formal competition for a national anthem for the Zionist movement. Problem was, they were all horrible, and he burned every single one of them. 
But the real power of the Atikva is seen in these two historical moments. In 1903, the British Empire offered the Zionists something called the Uganda Plan. The Uganda Plan was that they would allow all the Jews of Europe to transfer themselves to what was then Uganda. And it would become Palestine for the Jews. At the Zionist Congress in 1903, remarkably, a majority of the representatives of the Zionist movement voted to support it. Chaim Weitzman, also in the picture over there, Chaim Weitzman at the very, very top of the window. He has a goatee, if you see it. Chaim Weitzman famously said that this transfer, this temporary home of Jews to Uganda would be a nachstetel. It would be a temporary dwelling. They told the representatives, don't worry. We're not going to stay there forever in Uganda. We'll get to Palestine. And then as they were finally about to ratify the acceptance of what was called the Uganda plan, the 190 or so people who voted against it stood up. And what did they sing? The Hatikva. Odlo avda tikvatenu. We have not yet lost our hope. And the Uganda plan died. A little bit further on in history, in 1945, when Bergen-Belsen was liberated by the Americans, there's a BBC clip. And after Shabbat, and after Shabbat, you should go home and you should look it up. BBC clip, Bergen-Belsen. The first Shabbat service was held. There were still corpses lying around. Most of them had been buried, but some of the corpses were still lying there. But an army chaplain organized a Shabbat service. And at the end of the service, the people did not sing Adon Olam. And they didn't sing Yigdal. They sang the Hatikva meaning that standing in a death camp, they had not yet lost their hope. So how is it possible that this poem, only two stanzas of the total nine that he actually wrote, by the way, Imber, we know, was an alcoholic. He was itinerant, penniless, homeless. All of these things. How did this thing become the most well-known and passionate Hebrew, Jewish idea that has animated the past century and more. I think it's also the answer to the question that I began with. Why is it that Moses stood in the desert and told the people who would not be going into the land that they were going to die in that desert, but he tells them the story of holidays that would, would be observed in the land itself? And that because Moses was communicating to them hope and faith and the surety and the knowledge that these things will come to pass, that they may not get to the land, and he wouldn't get to the land, but his people, in fact, would. When you look at the story of anthems in the world, I did a little bit of research this week. The first national anthem ever established in the history of the world was in 1745. You know where it was? England. God save the queen. Not, not long after that, it became a trend, of course. We know that not long after, after the French Revolution, they had an anthem. 
And then in 1812, after the War of 1812, the Americans, after the attack on Fort Sumter, they had an anthem. And then Canada and all these other countries developed an anthem. And in each and every one of these anthems, what do they speak about? They speak about preserving royalty. Or they speak about a land. Or they speak about war. Or in truth, they usually speak about all three of those. But there is only one anthem in the entire lexicon of the human race that speaks not of royalty and not of war. It speaks of soul and of heart. The Hatikva is the most Jewish expression because Imber wrote about the longing of the heart and Nefesh Yehudi Homia and the storing of the Jewish soul to go back to a land so that we can be the people that we were meant to be. Odlo Ovda Tikvatenu, he writes. We have not yet lost our hope because we will never lose our hope. The greatness of the anthem reflects the greatness of us, which is the greatness of this moment. It's why we're here, because the people before us never lost their hope. And we have great reason to believe there will never be a reason to. Shabbat Shalom and Mazel Tov.